Welcome to Conversations from the Collection, a Newcastle Art Gallery podcast. This podcast was produced on the land of the Awabakal and Waramai people. We pay our deepest respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I'm your host, Zana Kobayashi, and each episode we'll be diving into a new collection area of the Newcastle Art Gallery to uncover hidden stories from artists who have contributed to the significance of our diverse collection. In today's episode, we speak with award-winning photographer Tamara Dean. Tamara has been working with the medium of photography for over 20 years, beginning as a photojournalist with the Sydney Morning Herald before transitioning to a conceptual fine art practice. Tamara has firmly cemented herself as one of Australia's most prominent photographers, winning several high-profile national awards, exhibiting across the world and developing a large online following. Newcastle Art Gallery holds 16 works from six series by Tamara Dean within its collection. And in this conversation, Tamara takes us behind the scenes of key series within her career as she describes the lengths she will go to to get each shot, including building an underwater studio in her backyard. We caught up with Tamara online from her home on the south coast of New South Wales. I grew up on the edge of a nature reserve and those were the sort of sights and smells and textures and experiences that I was immersed in when I kind of came into my consciousness in the world. And I feel like that created a very strong sense of uh, home for me amongst those elements. I just always had a very strong yearning to be in the bush. And I think that there's just a really fundamental sense of feeling at home in those environments for me. Mm, That's beautiful. What initially attracted you to photography? I don't know. Something about it just, um, I guess, clicked. (laughs) Pardon the pun. (laughs) Uh, Photography for me started with, um, it was almost as a source for my drawing and sketching and painting. So I'd go out and take photos of the bush. And once I started studying photography, I realised that there was a real um, ability to communicate more subtle ways of expressing humanity through photography when photographing people through a camera. Hmm. You spent sort of the first part of your career and over a decade working as a photojournalist and a documentary photographer. What did this time teach you about photography? So much. Um, I wasn't the kind of photographer that was able to learn the technical aspects at university or um, through being taught. I was very much the kind of photographer that learnt on the job. I had a camera. I went in, I joined the Herald at the time where they were still using film. So um, the way that I learnt photography was just taking lots and lots of photos putting the film through the machine, learning to read negatives and to be able to do that quite quickly, scan them, get them out to the paper. So I just was in an absolutely incredible position to be able to be um, essentially learning it all on the job, Uh, not with a teacher but just through trial and error and the advantage and luxury of having the materials at hand. So I could afford to shoot off a whole lot of rolls of film um, without it costing me the earth. So that was really uh, helpful. Um, And then so I was there through the whole transition to digital from the first 
digitals through to, you know, the, the higher end ones that I use today. Wow. You do not look old enough to be have lived ah! through that transition. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I suppose, you know, memory is short. Um, you know, you think digital photography has been around for ever, but, um, yeah, it's not that long ago, I guess, that that no, sort of shift no. has happened. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I remember um, I was sent over to Bali a year after the Bali bombings by the Herald to document how life was for the people there a year later. And uh, those photographs, that was on one of the really early digital cameras. And the files were so small. Um, it's just really interesting looking back to that and just how how hugely the medium has kind of changed and evolved and grown in quality. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. What are some of your other favourite assignments from that time? Um, I really enjoyed being able to go to something like a festival and try and find little moments within all of the chaos. And I liked those kinds of assignments. Um, And environmental portraits where I'd just have to go to someone's house and take a portrait of them and sort of find nice light and get them to open up to me a little bit and, and work out how to show them in a sensitive light and that's really where I learned um, how to direct people and step into that role that people kind of want you to take as a photographer because a lot of people feel quite vulnerable when they're being photographed so it's helpful to be able to give direction and um, and that just helps everyone feel better about the process. (laughs) You were a member of the Australian Photographic Collective Oculi from 2001 to 2011. Yeah. How did you become involved and what does membership mean? I joined Oculi uh, not long after I joined the Sydney Morning Herald. When I joined the Herald, I didn't really know any photographers and uh, I very quickly found the photographers whose work resonated with me. And once I started spending time with them and showing the work that I'd made, I was on the radar of Oculi and Oculi was, had only been formed a year prior and it was um, uh, essentially to provide a platform for photographers who, who weren't really able to get their personal work and their personal projects shown to the full extent that they'd like to in the, in the media. So out of that frustration, they formed Oculi and, um, and because I'd been, I was working on my own personal projects it was a good fit for me and being a member of Oculi was essentially, you know, you were sort of living and breathing photography and making your own stories and each month we would be expected to come up with a couple of, um, they were called singles, so single images that could be from anywhere that would just keep the front of the site changing so that each month when you go to the Oculi site it would be a new images. So images that may not find a place, they might be subtle art, they might be, you know, less shouty images. They might, yeah, so more poetic. Would you meet in person or would it all happen online? Uh, a lot of it would happen online, but we would always have a, a yearly meeting and um, we might have some slide nights or, yeah, there was, a, there was a camaraderie, so we would get together for things. When did you begin to shift your focus to a more fine art practice? Yeah, after I had my daughter, so Ruby was born in 2005 and at that point I realised there was no way I could keep working as I had 
because the amount of time I would invest in documenting um, the stories I was exploring was impossible with a newborn. And so I had Ruby and then 15 months later I had my son Jack. And so I had this period of time where I was able to sort of look more objectively at what I was doing in my life and which way I was going and it became very clear I couldn't keep working as a photojournalist. Um, and it gave me that moment of pause to go, actually, I really my whole life I'd wanted to be an artist and I sort of I got on this the trajectory of photojournalism which was so exciting and so uh, fulfilling at the time um, uh, but it was nice to get that that minute to sort of oh, by minute I mean couple of years <laughs> to, to sort of stand back and go actually I've learned a lot from this but I would like to go back to my earlier aspirations of being an artist and so that's when I started really making more conceptual work and exhibiting with galleries and just changing the way that I was um, focusing my practice. I understand that the series Ritualism from 2009, which Newcastle Art Gallery has two works from within our collection, was a turning point for you in your practice as you moved towards more conceptual photography. What was it that initially interested you about creating works that had more staged elements to them? Well, when I was going through the early motherhood time in my life, I really was struck by how long the days were and how yeah, it was just such a different part of my life to what it had been before I'd had babies. And I noticed that like when I would be having a shower or even just washing the dishes and having my hands in the water, those were the moments of, um, I don't know if spirituality is a word that I could use, but I guess that was the closest I felt to having moments of reprieve. Um, and so I started thinking about water and the rituals associated with it and when does the ritual of bathing become something that is purifying spiritually or when is it just a repetitive kind of domestic thing? And so those were the questions that were going around in my mind and I found that the best way for me to try and start posing those questions was by um, creating these sort of staged moments to articulate them. Mm. Another thing that I read was for a long time you would photograph mostly people that were close to you. When did you begin to develop the more performative elements within your practice, such as using models or directing movements within the photographs? Most of my early work in that phase was friends and family who I could shyly kind of ask to participate in this with me because I was building my confidence. And then um, when I got to my series, This Too Shall Pass, which was the next one after ritualism, uh, that was when I started seeing people on the street who I'd go up to and um, ask them if they'd model for me. And I never approached models. Like um, I've always largely photographed just your everyday people, um, someone that might catch my eye due to the quality of their hair or the tone of their skin or like something that I could see would resonate in the light that I was um, I was using so I was shooting at the end of the day just before darkness falls and so the at that point in time I was sort of finding uh, young women with really pale skin and red hair because I knew that their skin would glow in that light and I was sort of leaning into the pre-Raphaelite 
style of painting, um, referring to that in my photography. So I was starting to kind of put together influences um, and bring them into my work by the choice of models and things like that. When did the brave leap into full-time artistic practice happen? I think it was in 2014 and I took a redundancy from the Herald. I'd been there for 13 years and uh, that's when I went, okay, I'm going to give this a shot (laughs) and become a full-time artist and see if I survive. And you have? (laughs) I have, I have, yeah, happily can say I have. Did it feel scary at that time to make the leap or...? Uh, I've always had a blind, I don't know if faith is the word, but a belief that it's something that I could achieve. So I never doubted my inclination to be an artist because it's just always been there. So it was more exciting than scary, I guess. And then just going full-time meant that I could just put everything into it, which then meant that I could make the best work I could make. And was there anything particular that helped you on the way to becoming a full-time artist? Well, I think um, as a photographic artist, apart from the really well-known photographic artists that we learnt about in high school, um, Rosemary Lang, Bill Henson, Tracy Moffat, I really um, couldn't see a way to make my way as a photographic artist without gallery representation. It it took the confidence of a gallery representing me for people to take my work seriously. Over the years that I've been um, working as a professional photographer, I've moved through a number of galleries. And um, I'm now with Michael Red Gallery, who are just amazing to work with. And it's incredible being with a gallery who are... um, concerned and interested in growing your profile and being there alongside you, supporting you. I I don't feel with Michael Reed that I am the one that brings them my audience. I I feel like we both have um, a very strong hand in that together. It's like a partnership. I know there'll be a few budding artists listening who might be curious about how you begin to develop those relationships with a gallery or begin to find a gallerist that suits you. Yeah, look, it's really, I'm not going to say it's easy. It was really hard. I was lucky enough that when I was trying to get my ritualism series up, I went to Charles Hewitt Gallery, who were also framing, and um, I went there for a framing job. And the manager, Larry McDonald, at the time saw my work and said, oh, I'd like to show Charles, and that's how I got my first exhibition. The best headspace to have when you go out into the world looking for representation is if you get knocked back it's not necessarily just something that you reflect on yourself like if you find the right gallery for your work then that's when the work will be able to find its home but if you don't have a gallery backing your work there's no point being with them so it's less about being with the gallery and more about being in a partnership with the gallery where they see the value in your work. I mean, there were many times I was walking along the streets. I tried to get representation in New York, knocked on every gallery in like the Lower East Side, tried to get representation in London. I, you know, I just, I really put myself out there and I would say that the knocking on door approach is not the most effective. Mm. (laughs) Um, Having done it myself and even knowing that it wasn't, I still did it 
because there's no real set way in. That's great advice. Now, I've heard you talk before about that shift uh, between your photojournalism when you were shooting constantly to then working within your fine art practice where you would spend maybe months thinking about a shoot before picking up your camera. Yeah, sometimes years. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes years, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Did you enjoy that shift? It wasn't comfortable, um, but I'm glad I made it. Uh, I don't think I could have continued with that level of energy being put into my photography. And, and I feel like I got what I needed out of that stage, which was being able to anticipate or build towards a moment and be ready to capture it. And, you know, it takes a lot of energy to constantly be present waiting to capture a photograph. And, and it sort of puts a distance between myself and the world. So I now I just... I have that heightened sense of trying to find an image or a moment, but I do it within the parameters of my own shoot as opposed to the world, <laughs> um, which, uh, which is that's the way that I can maintain my energy and my ability to do that. Yeah. Yes. You mentioned that sometimes you might be working for years on a concept. How do you begin to develop a series of works? always different um when i say work like years i mean that for instance in my instinctual series i was photographing some figures from looking down in the water on a bridge i was on a bridge and they were in the water and had them swimming around and i discovered that the figures started to create what almost looked like a school of fish and i called that image shoaling and um i thought when i took that photograph thought, wow, I wonder what this would look like underwater. But it took me years to get to, into a position where I could actually try that idea out. So that, that's what I mean. Like sometimes there might be a seed of an idea that I find in one place and then it won't kind of come into fruition until the time is right. Like I might find I went to Heron Island and then there was like a whole lot of people that were willing to um, – dive in nude for me so that I could see if this idea worked but sometimes it's hard to just get a whole lot of people to participate in something quite you know that would have been quite a bit of organizing um just to test an idea out so sort of had to wait for the right time and then that became an entire series endangered so yes and that was the work that you in 2019 you won the Moran Contemporary Photographic Prize with Tell me about shooting underwater for the first time. Uh, well, I'd done a little bit of shooting underwater in my instinctual series and I realised that I'm quite, well, we humans are quite buoyant. So that was a challenge. I had to have my husband holding me down in the water to be able <laughs> to try and get photographs. Um, I realised that weight belts would probably be useful but never really got that <laughs> organised. And then with Endangered, uh, I was like, balancing on a pool noodle and uh, I bought this underwater housing that I could kind of just submerge and take the photographs with but it was really clunky like I didn't I didn't I felt like I had to hand over a lot of control um, of my camera to um, the automatic functions because the camera housing was quite clunky to operate I'm really happy with how that series came together but if I'd had I, I just found that it was a way of working that was deeply frustrating and so then I ended up building an underwater studio at home because I was wanting to be able to um, 
have that control in that I'm outside of the pool shooting in. Um, but also I don't really feel super comfortable in the ocean. So um, it has the added benefit of me not having to be in the ocean. You found a way to harness the element of water. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Tell us about your underwater studio. It sounds incredible. Well, it's essentially a pool that is spec built. Um, so I have a big three meter window at one end of it. Um, and it comes out of the hill. So I'm standing on the ground looking in the window and then the pool sort of goes off into the hill. And I drop backdrops into it and roll them down the full length of the pool. It's quite deep at the um, deep end so that I can get a sense of scale of the figure within the scene. It's heated like above body temperature so that I can have people in there for ages. So there's a whole lot of things that I mean, to look at it, it looks like a pool, but there's a lot of factors that have been built into it to enable me to be able to shoot. Yeah. Yes, because I actually would love to talk about one of your more recent series, The Suspended Moment. Uh, it's such a beautiful series and it reimagines and sort of animates the concept of a traditional still life painting. Yes. Um, with sort of fruits and flowers floating throughout the frame. Uh, can you tell us a bit about this work? Yeah, so... I'm an ambassador for Fujifilm and so they contacted me and they were like, we've got this new lens, could you pitch us an idea and um, you can have the lens if you um, provide these photographs for us to, to show the lens off. And so I came up with this idea of, yeah, really referencing those traditional um, Dutch still life paintings but creating this element of um, spontaneity in them so I guess turning the still life on its head in a way they loved the idea and so I got to working on it and it took a lot of perseverance because it, every individual item is weighted so there's actual weights in it because to create either the buoyancy to have them floating midair or to have them down on the table or, there was a lot of setting up to get it just right but um yeah, I hadn't anticipated it having such an amazing response from people. It was like over 40,000 likes on my Instagram on that those images, which blew my mind. I just, I didn't anticipate it. But I'm continuing to build on that series. I really, I did that in a very short amount of time, over three days. And so I'm going to spend the next number of months just really kind of refining what I want to do with that series and trying other things out and just spending a bit more time really trying to make some more new works in that vein. In the last few years, you've also been developing installations alongside your photographs. Um, for example, in the 2018 Adelaide Biennale of Australian Art, you're, you had an installation within the Stream of Consciousness exhibition. Um, can you tell us what led you to begin developing installations? Uh, I think uh, largely I, when I go out into the bush, I find that if I bring back a photograph, it just doesn't bring back enough for me. Like I want to bring back more of that experience. Like it's one little aspect of what is this incredibly big experience. And so for me the installations were about kind of trying to transport people to a moment like that may touch in with their memories and connect them to nature. And so I've worked with a scent designer, Ainsley Walker, um, um, and we create these, well, she creates these scents that are, um, they're made to tap into that memory, that scent memory we have. 
to transport you to places that you've been in your life. Um, and then the sound element, just all of those elements that come into the experience of being somewhere, that's what I try and bring into the installation. So it's more than just the photograph. The photograph is a way in, but then there's this other whole part of the experience that builds that context of the photograph or the power of the photograph. And you've worked with Ainsley again for your um, survey at Monash Gallery of Art, is that correct? Yeah. Can you tell us about the sense that you, she's created in that exhibition? Sure. So um, I've worked with Ainsley for nine years now. So we first worked together on Here and Now, which is where um, the Here and Now scent was developed, which is a smell of petrichor, so rain approaching. And that's one of the scents that's in the gallery at the moment. And then for a number of different um, installations and exhibitions, we've worked together to create scents that, um, like, for instance, in my um, exhibition at Nanangula Southern Highlands Regional Gallery, we created a scent for each room that was part of the way you would read the photograph. So it just, it just enhanced the way that you might experience the room so those, those are scents that have been brought into the show at Monash, ones that we've worked together on previously and they're, they're um, put around the exhibition so that you can smell them and um, that kind of accompanies the way you experience the works. It's incredible. I would love to come and see one of your works with a scent attached. That sounds like an Thanks. amazing experience. <laughs> <laughs> there were two works from our collection that I wanted to speak with you about. Uh, Sacred Lotus in Autumn from 2017 and Sacred Lotus in Summer from 2018 from the series In Our Nature. And I understand that they were created as part of the Adelaide Biennale of Australian Art in 2018. Yeah. And that it was developed across a period of a year and inspired by the Botanic Gardens. I was wondering if you could talk us through the making of that work so I understand it involved a you know huge cast and obviously yes. a long period of time. Yeah, yeah. So I think I actually think it took me about 18 months to make that whole series in the end because I first visited Adelaide and was walking through the gardens talking with the curator and um, we came to the Sacred Lotus Pond in the middle of the gardens which at that point in time was in full bloom with these incredible pink flowers and um, the scale of the leaves was sort of like bigger than like larger than human and so I saw that pond and just thought, oh, my God, that would be amazing to photograph in. And um, it was sort of the seed for um, the kind of idea of using the life cycle of the plants in the gardens to really kind of use as a parallel with the human life cycle and try to really make the point that we are part of nature. We're not separate and sort of to look at all of the things that we have in common. And so uh, I decided to try and photograph the plants across different stages of the seasons and then relate them to the ages and stages of humans. So I put call-outs for ages from, you know, very small through to 80 years of age and, and staged these shoots over the course of the four seasons. In the case of Sacred Lotus Pond, I revisited that each season to see to capture the different ways of how it, it kind of is, yeah, it goes through its life cycle. And it had the most profoundly visual changes that um, made it a beautiful space to photograph in. And I believe that you used dancers for that series as well? Yeah, in that series I did use dancers. It was the first time I'd used professional um, 
dancers and it was an eye-opening experience because they were just such incredible people to work with and they were able to use their bodies to do things that I had wanted to to get people doing in photographs like particular actions that no one could do without having that professional training of being a dancer. And I understand um, you have also recently been photographing yourself in your series Hijinx in the Hydrangeas. Hydrangeas, yeah. What was that experience like to pull yourself into the frame? It was quite funny because it was just, I started photographing at the beginning of the lockdowns um, and it was my way of kind of getting through it. And I'd go out each afternoon because I live on six acres and just try and come up with photographs of myself. It felt kind of ridiculous because I was running back and forth from the camera and the timer and um, it was just me out in the landscape and it was kind of silly. Uh, not that I wasn't serious about what I was doing, but it was just, it felt silly as the, being the model and the photographer. And it had a lot of challenges, but it, it got me through it because I'd come back and it just I was so charged with the excitement of being able to just walk out my door and use myself to photograph and come back with something, something that I was happy with. And as the lockdowns came and went, I then pushed that further and photographed myself in other people's private gardens. So I could still social distance, but I had a few more um, elements to play with um, because our block is quite green, um, whereas I wanted to be able to play amongst flowers and do things like that as well. So, yeah, it was a great series to, to make in that period, um, but I am in no rush to photograph myself again. It was, <laughs> it was really challenging, but um, I'm, I'm proud of it but I don't want to do it again. You have an incredible uh, photographic practice that actually spans over 20 years. What are some of the shifts that you've seen in photography over this time? I guess like when I look at the way that through Oculi we were photographing daily life, that was unique then. And now I look at the way that people engage with social media and that sort of like daily life photography is just has become part of yeah everyone's lives really um so that would be a difference um that's true do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing or you feel kind of neutral to it i think it's a great thing that people are engaged with photography through social media i think that there's a huge appetite for photography um and i've been often asked if I think, you know, social media has killed photography because it's at everyone's fingertips. But the photography that most people are doing is pretty lazy photography, really. It's like pick up your camera. It's There's not, uh, I mean, your, your phone, It's it, it doesn't really compare to, um, to professional photography. But that was a question I was getting a lot for a while there. Um, there's a lot more selfies. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Well, Tamara, I think that brings us to our final question for today. If you could have dinner with any artist from Newcastle Art Gallery's collection, who would it be and why? Uh, so it would be Jean Bellette, who is a painter or who was a painter. Um, she's since passed away. So there's a cottage in Hilland called Hayfliggers Cottage and that's one of my favourite places in the world. And it was owned by Jean and her husband, Paul. And he was a journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald, so I have that in common with him. 
and she was a painter. She painted the landscape around Hilland. And I was lucky enough to be able to do a number of artist residencies in her old house. I'd just really love to meet her and to, um, to just get a sense of who she was and where she ended up. And yeah, I don't know a lot about her, but I know that we'd have a great time chatting over lunch. <laughs> Sounds fabulous. What would, you, what would you serve for lunch? Ooh, I am not the cook. I don't cook. So I'd ask my very, very wonderful husband, Johnny Leahy, to make something special. <laughs> I might make a pav at the end. <laughs> that sounds great. I think every good meal ends with a pav. <laughs> well, Tamara Dean, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Conversations from the Collection. And if you'd like to know more about Tamara and her works in Newcastle Art Gallery's collection, there are links in the show notes, or you can visit the gallery's website at nag.org.au. Join us next week for our final interview of the season with sculptor Hilary Mays. My practice has been, I suppose, the more focus, the more depth. I mean, you just go further and further into its possibilities. So you'll manage to articulate any possible extemporization. I suppose it's a bit like music or it's like working with the score. Conversations from the Collection is a Newcastle Art Gallery podcast. This podcast is supported by the New South Wales Government through Create New South Wales. If you enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe and share us with your friends.